0: Hey there! Welcome to Watching the Tudors. This is the show where we watch the Tudors and talk about the history behind the drama. So my name is Heather Tesco, and I'm also the host of the Renaissance English History Podcast, which has been running since 2009. And Jonathan, my co-host, and I recorded this episode. When we were apart um, via Skype. So we're going to jump right into the questions here in a second. But I just want to do the regular um, disclaimer that if you are watching, if you're listening to this, we are assuming that you are watching the tutors. There's spoilers. So spoiler alert. Um, don't watch this if you don't want to know what happened in each episode. And then also even longer term, we talk about things that happen like Anne Boleyn gets killed. <laughs> so don't listen to this if you don't want to watch or if you don't want to know what's going to happen in the future and you, and you don't know and you want to keep it that way. And so the other thing, if you want to learn more about us, more about my other show, about the Renaissance English History Podcast, you can go to com. And there's also a Facebook page, facebook.com slash watching the tutors. Finally, one great thing you can do to help us if you want to help support this show is to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It is the number one thing you can do to help shows rise in the ratings so more people can find us and more people can listen to us. So please leave us a review on iTunes if you can, or even just a rating, just click five stars, please. (laughs) So the quick kind of episode, what happens in the episode is that Cardinal Campeggio gets to London. And, you know, there's all this work behind the scenes of trying to have this divorce happen. And the real piece of drama, as it were, is that they're trying to convince Catherine of Aragon that if she just goes into a nunnery, she won't have to worry about this, which would be true. Um, It would also have a lot of other things happen. But so the main thing is trying to force Catherine into a nunnery and just the delays, the delays, the delays that are going on with trying to get this divorce. So we will jump
1: right into the questions. So, so the episode starts off with the A painter painting the king and queen sitting next to each other. And I guess my questions are first, like, is that something that kings and queens would do? Or, you know, people like, like royalty or something just sit to have their paintings painted? And also was the painting, the actual painting that they were sitting for and having done? Is that a real painting?
2: Cool? Yeah. So, I don't think that that was actually a real painting. But yes, people did do that. And what would usually happen is that people would um, take sketches, and then they would paint from their sketches. But the act of taking sketches could, you know, take hours for people to get all the different, you know, angles that they wanted so that they could recreate a lifelike painting. And interestingly, so the tutors were brilliant at propaganda through art. Um, just absolutely amazing at it, and any people who are like advertising people into you know branding could totally take a lesson from the tutors. They Henry VIII especially, um, and then Elizabeth mastered the art of the portrait um, to show to, to show a message. And I actually did an episode on this on the other podcast um portraits and propaganda and i looked at some of the really famous paintings of henry and what he was trying to say in them and a, a really big thing of this was if you look at each painting of him and when it was actually done there's a very famous painting of him uh that dates from right after he, uh anne had been put to death and of course spoiler alert she's put to death uh in part on charges of adultery now adultery was a really embarrassing thing for men at the time it w- it was bad for the women of course too but it was really embarrassing for men because the thought process was if your woman was going to cheat on you then you clearly couldn't please her and so in this really in this really famous portrait of Henry from 1537 he has the most enormous codpiece ever the most it's like scary and Like, that was basically him saying, yeah, look, it's all Anne's fault, because look at this codpiece, right? Like, just check it out. Like, of course, I can please her. And it's really, really funny to like, when you look at these paintings at these portraits, and when they were done, and like the sort of subliminal messages that they were sending at the time. And so I think it's interesting that they included that I don't know that they meant to include that as a message about the tutors and their portraits and their propaganda. But it made me think about that, that the tutors were just masterful at that. And um, one interesting note, even further down the line with Elizabeth, as Elizabeth was getting old, she didn't want people to paint her old. She always wanted to keep this, you know, the very famous images that we have of Elizabeth of Gloriana, and she never seems to age. And in part, she put out authorized sketches that you had to paint her portrait from those authorized sketches. And if you deviated from them, you would lose your rights to painting her portrait. And so that's just kind of a a note (laughs) on painting and um, portraits in general. So the short answer is I don't think that particular painting was done. Um, I I really don't think it was. I I could tell you it it wasn't. Um, But yes, people did sit for portraits like that, and it could take hours.
1: I see. All right. Uh, next Campeggio, uh, the cardinal sent from the Pope came to visit Woolsey and they were talking like they knew each other. Like, did they know each other before this?
2: They probably would have known each other professionally, like work contacts.
1: I see. So kind of known, yeah, known of each other, known, like known each other a little, they didn't like grow up together or something. No. And then, and also Campeggio knew like all about. Anne? Like, was she not necessarily like her, but I mean, was this whole situation like known about everywhere? I mean, it wasn't like a secret? Yeah, yeah. So uh, everyone knew. All right. And then the king, you know, uh, the the next scene, the king was walking with Anne in the in the gardens or something and they were talking about their their wedding and stuff like that. Uh, Do you think the king was really like he was just totally sure this was going to happen. I mean, it, there was no like, I mean, it just seems like there's no question in his head. No, and I just it just seems strange.
2: Well, I think um, you you have to remember also that the idea of getting an annulment um, of having your marriage annulled when you were royal, wasn't anything new. For Henry, this was just a basic, um, you know, b- no big deal, like just do send in the paperwork. Like this had been done before, it had just been done in France. Um, Louis Twelfth had gotten rid of his wife. Um, they even brought her up uh, when they were talking about the idea of sending Catherine to a convent that Louis the XII's wife had done this. I mean, this this wasn't a new thing. And especially if your wife couldn't bear you a child, that was like the Queen's number one job was to bear a child. And so if you couldn't do that, it, it was really standard procedure in a lot of ways. And especially then if the king had somebody else, like he had no reason to think that this wasn't going to be accepted. And, you know, he had been on the Empire, he had, yeah, he, he had no reason to believe that this wasn't going to be accepted.
1: So the whole problem was just that the that the Pope had to give him permission in the first place.
2: And not only that, and I mean, again, he, he would have, under normal circumstances, the Pope would have been like, okay, cool, I'll sign it, no big deal. But because Charles V was um, Catherine's nephew, and because he had custody of the Pope's body, and, you know, had Rome.
1: I see. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that has something to do, too. Yeah. And... Then they were also talking about the queen, not, not, not them two, but then the next scene um, was the Cardinals and stuff again. And they were talking about the queen abdicating her marriage. Like they were going to go talk her into, into this. And I guess it was Campeggio that went to talk to the queen and talk her into it. And I mean, is that, is that like a real thing? I mean, they really propose this to the queen Catherine.
2: Yes. And it, it, To be honest, it would have been a really elegant solution. And it was a solution that had been done in France just a generation before Um, it was there was precedent for that. And I think that if Catherine hadn't been Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter, you know, any, I think many people would have realized, okay, I can't give him the son that he needs. And, you know, it sucks for me, but, you know, here's this great life. And especially she was very religious. She was very devout. You know, it, it, to them, it probably seemed like a, a really fine idea.
1: Yeah, no, I get it. I can see how that'd be, you know, kind of a win on everyone's part. I mean, you know, aside from the queen, like going against how she feels. But yeah, and I wrote, I'm I'm proud of her. I'm proud of the queen. She's pretty awesome for sticking to her. You know, sticking to her wits or whatever.
2: So, one other thing I want to say about that is that she was also thinking about her daughter Mary's rights. So, if she would have abdicated, and then, you know, if Henry would have had children with Anne, they would have had precedent over Mary. And so she was thinking not just about herself, but about her daughter and her daughter's right to rule. Now, in England, the idea of a female monarch by herself was it was an anathema. I think we talked about it before that the last time England had had something like that happen was like the granddaughter of William the Conqueror was Matilda. And there was a huge civil war around it. And, you know, England had just come out of the Wars of the Roses and England didn't want to have to, you know, come to grips with the idea of a female monarch. But of course, for Catherine, her mother was a female monarch on her own, who was a warrior queen, right? So for Catherine, it's like, well, what's the big deal? Of course, a woman can do this, like, you know, who cares? But for England, it it was it was much different. And so Catherine was really trying to protect Mary's interest as well by not abdicating. It wasn't even so much her being stubborn. Um, There was probably some of that. But it was also her protecting her family.
1: I see. Yeah. So there was more there was more to it than just this doesn't feel right kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next scene, we had Cromwell go and visit Anne at her house. And I was just really kind of confused at this. I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that confusing if If you know more, I I was just really confused. He's talking about a guy, you know, Cardinal Fish or something. It was in Holland Um, who wrote something about the Pope. I don't, I I really didn't kind of understand it.
2: Yeah. So there was a guy called Simon Fish and he really did exist. He was a reformer Protestant and he actually, at the time William Tyndale was spreading the English Version of the New Testament, and this was all in going on in in the Holland, uh, in the in the Netherlands, and Simon Fish helped to spread that, and he wrote a lot, and he you know he was a very prominent reformer. Now I don't know that Cromwell knew Fish, um, I don't know that they would have talked, but I think that this scene is alluding to the fact that Cromwell was pro- was a Protestant, even at this point he was very anti. Catholic and, you know, I think it's foreshadowing Cromwell is, is responsible for the dissolution of the monasteries, like totally. And we're going to see that further on. Um, so it's probably hinting at that. And it's also hinting at this idea that. Um, and also had had likely had some reformist leanings. I don't know that she was a full out Protestant, um, but she definitely leaned to that direction. And that would ultimately be, you know, what the arguments that Henry used to throw off papal authority were going to be from these reformers. And so I think it's just kind of starting to hint at that. So there was indeed a a, a doctor or a Simon Fish and. Cromwell was a Protestant and I don't know that this scene would have happened with him handing this to Anne, especially this early on, but that's what was kind of going on with that. I, yeah. yeah,
1: I understand. It kind of paints the picture of, I mean, like to me, I mean, I, I without this, I wouldn't have known that there was like this, I, I don't know, pro- Protestant movement where, you know, there's people writing things all over the place in a different countries. So, so, I mean, I, yeah, it makes sense now. Um and then next we see Thomas Tallis with his new love interest, and they can both see the girl Jane's dead sister, which is just more strangeness.
2: I don't even understand. I'm so angry at this storyline around Thomas Tallis. Like I I don't under, I really, I, I,
1: I, yeah. Like it's just, I mean, I can just imagine the writers like sitting around before starting it like Hey, so let's make the Thomas Tallis a really strange one who is interested, has love interests in men and women and their sisters and all sorts of people. And he can see ghosts and um, and he's odd. So, so, yeah, I just, it's like...
2: I mean, the other thing is, so the other part of this that makes me angry is that Thomas Tallis wasn't at court at this time. This is predating him. So I don't know why you've got to bring him in here when at the time there were actually really interesting stories around music. If you want to bring music into the time period, like there was this guy Petrarch Alamiri and he was, I think, yeah, he, so he was the guy who was the, he was actually a double agent, but he was a musician and he had a, a big studio um, where he would write manuscripts and copy manuscripts and stuff like that. And there's actually an album that the group Alamiri named after him uh, did called The Spy's Choir Book. And it's basically, he was like a double agent and he was spying for Henry on the continent and he was spying for the continent on Henry. And he was like this double agent who was also a musician. And the thing at the time period is that musicians, were often the biggest spies because they could go around from place to place to place to place and like nobody suspected them because they were just traveling around composing their music playing their music and like they got all this patronage at court and so they made really good spies and you know Alan Mary is an example of a spy that we know about so I don't really know there's like all these really great stories around the music of the time period if you want to like get into making a weird story why do you have to invent Thomas Thomas seeing ghosts. I, I don't understand that. Like, do do a storyline with Alamiri. Like, that would make so much more sense to me.
1: Yeah, and then just have Thomas Talis come in to the court when he actually came into the court. Maybe like crazy. All right. So moving on. Oh no. I, my, the quest. There was a question in all of that. Did Thomas Talis actually marry a lady named Jane?
2: I think it was Joan. And yes, he did.
1: Okay, Jane Joan. All right. Southern talks to. Cardinal Campeggio. Did she actually talk to him? Yes. Um, all right. And then next, uh, Brandon, Charles Brandon, I think his name is, and his and the king's sister, come back to court, as, as you said they were earlier. And I just wanted to make a note because I was really uh, confused last uh, episode because of the weird Brandon sex scene that seemed to have, like, no point. Well, it made sense this time because now they're arguing about how Brandon had all these mistresses. And if we wouldn't have had that scene, we would have been like, what are you talking about? I understand the random sex scene with Brandon from last episode. There you go. And then the next scene, they're all dancing, like they're having a little party or whatever they call it at the in the court or whatever. And it's not a question, just a statement. Like, it seems so awkward, like Henry with Anne, just like in public and like. He's like on the international scene with this girl and he's like married. I mean, it's just, it just seems so is uncouth the right word. It's just so like unbecoming of a king.
2: Well, yes. And it was also um, fairly common for um, kings to have their mistresses, um in in France for example later on the king had his his number one mistress who like lived with the the wife and they were all kind of one happy family as it were um so while to to our eyes it might look very strange. And I think it, you know, it was kind of uncomfortable. I think Henry at this point still saw it as like, this is my number one mistress. And, and, you know, that's, that's who that is. And Catherine kind of thought, well, I have to accept it. And I think they were both aware that there could be a lot more going on here. You know, I don't think queens particularly liked their husbands having mistresses, but especially once they were past childbearing age and when they were pregnant. And, you know, there were so many times when the church told you that you weren't allowed to have sex. Like, seriously, like you weren't allowed to have sex on Fridays. You weren't allowed to have sex on feast days. You weren't allowed to have sex, like, during Lent. You weren't allowed to have sex during Advent. You weren't like the, the idea that anybody could get pregnant, like – with all of the times that you weren't allowed to have sex. like Millions of people
0: have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
2: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just
0: not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com
2: It kind of blows me away. I mean, clearly people weren't following this, but in theory. And so, you know, again, like when queens were pregnant, you weren't allowed to have sex with them. And so it was really common for the kings to, you know, to partake of mistresses and the queens just were kind of like, all right, well, I'm the, I'm the queen. That's a mistress, whatever. But, and you know, even at court, like they would, potentially bring the mistresses to court and and people would know like, okay, that's, that's his mistress. So I need to get in good with her if, you know, cause she has his ear and blah, 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 blah. And so I, I don't think it was particularly that unusual. What was unusual in this was that the idea that there actually could be two Queens coming up that Henry really wanted to leave Catherine. And I think that made it extra strange.
1: Um, I was just a little thing. I'm still not into the dancing, but um, maybe I'll come around to it by the end of the end of the show.
2: I love it. I think it's so hot.
1: You know, (laughs) I don't get
2: it. It's like all that anticipation Um, and all of this, like, you know, these scripted movements. Like, I don't know. I think it's hot.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. I do. So the next scene is not as uh, poetic, I guess. It's like the crazy guys in purple. I, I'm not sure who, like they're her kind of like her legal representation, but they're from the church as well. Um, but anyways, they're like her her purple holy lawyers or something, and they come in and like I just like I just can't believe. I mean, I, I can believe it. Like you know, I I know how things go with politicians and royalty but just that these guys would have the nerve like being sworn to god to come in and like you know say this stuff that are that they know are just outright lies like to Catherine, and like pressuring her into like doing things when she knows it's not true like i just it was just really kind of hard like hard to believe scene or whatever and uh i'm just really proud of of her for being such a proud woman and uh, not being like, oh yes, yes, you're right. I'm just a weak woman, and whatever you say must be true. And um, I don't know. I'm glad she sent. I'm glad she sent them out of out of there.
2: Yep. Well, she was she was Spanish.
1: Yes, I, I like it. The, the, Spanish women really. You know, I'm I'm here in Spain, so I can kind of. I was just thinking about this yesterday, watching this lady drive. Like, Spanish women seem to be very strong women. Like, just strong women. I think it's pretty awesome. Anyways, is, oh, next Henry went into her bed, like spent the night with Anne for whatever weird reason. Um, Like, I guess this is just a question not of history or anything. This is a question of a man asking a woman, because I don't know how you women think even still. Uh, Was that like polite of him to like share her bed because she would want to share her bed or like completely insulting because they both know like he's in love with someone else. And, or is it kind of both like,
2: um,
1: well, I
2: think Catherine knew what was going on. Um, You know, she knew that he had to do this for the sake of appearance and probably part of her thought, you know, maybe I can convince him now that he's here and he's away. And so, Yeah, you know, until her dying day, Catherine never blamed Henry for this. Catherine always loved Henry. And she always blamed his advisors and Anne. And, you know, I think that she thought if she could just talk to him, like, and remind him of how, of how much they meant to each other, and, you know, try to remind him of all of this, she would be able to win him back. Um, Now she she miscalculated how much Henry wanted this divorce. But, um, you know, I think that at times like this, she would have seen this as an opportunity to remind him of well, I don't why he married her, I suppose. And to try to bring him back, she, she continually prayed for his soul and thought that his soul was in peril because he was listening to these horrible advisors and things like that.
1: And he was so cold to her, like just, you know, she's like pouring out her heart and he's saying like, Maybe I should just send you and your daughter away or blah, blah, blah. And just, is there a record? Like, I mean, not like transcripts, but I mean, did we, like, was he really that bold to her? Like, yeah, he was. Not cool, man. Then we're back with Thomas Tallis. He's having intimate time with his with his lady. And I guess he was talking about traveling. And I guess I was just, you know, my history isn't the greatest. By this time, what are we, around like 1520s or
2: Late 1520s, yeah.
1: Okay, 15, late 15. Like, was most of the world discovered? I mean, America, what, 1492 is like that all? I mean, he was talking about China and... Yeah. I mean, I guess they knew about all this by that time, about...
2: Well, they would have known about China anyway, because of um, the land routes at the time. But, um and Marco Polo and all that, you know, there, they knew that there was that there was a China for a long time. Um, And that was the whole idea of trying to get there by going to the West rather than the East. Um, So but no Magellan, who was, of course, the first person to sail around to cross the Pacific Ocean and sail around the world, he was in 1519 to 1521. So so, so we knew the
1: we knew the i mean theoretically we the humans like knew the world was round by by this point
2: yeah well we knew it was round with columbus then i think um well, and that was the the whole idea of be, behind Columbus was that you could sail to the west to get to the east because the world was round. So that was the, the proposition. Um, but yeah, by this point, we knew for sure. We knew that there was this wide, huge Pacific Ocean, uh, how to cross it, you know, all that. And then how Africa went. And We, we kind of then had the charts to see kind of how big it was and, and to know all of that.
1: Yeah. I see. Can I ask a side question? Sure. When When was it that like, who was it? Was it Galileo that was like, they were threatening to kill him because he said the world was round.
2: No, he said that the world was the center uh, that the, he was heliocentric versus. Yeah.
1: When, do you know when that was? When that was the was sev- around?
2: 17th century, mid 17th century.
1: Oh, so that was after this happened.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, God. So we still, it's just, it's just amazing to me. Like did uh, it, it, the, Information kind of trickles in. But, anyways, that's a whole different story. Thank you for. Yeah, so that was. We could talk about
2: that. I I think by this point, people who knew, um, who could follow this stuff, knew that the Earth went around the sun rather than the other way around, but it wasn't officially proven. And it was people like Galileo who were writing about it and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: So, anyways, back to this it seems as if it's all coming together with like Anne and her mission to get Woolsey out. Because it's like all falling down for Because Sorry, the, the next scene was when um, Woolsey was walking around with the king. And the king, you know, like like Anne told Henry that it was Woolsey that's stalling this all up. And then so the king has a word with Woolsey. And Woolsey's like begging begging him, like, no, oh, please, I'm your servant. And just, it's just kind of all coming together. Like, like I just, um, yeah. I mean, this is like the, the beginning of the end of Wolsey, is it not?
2: uh yeah
1: yeah okay it seems like it like it used to seem like the king was like hey what do we do wolsey this and that now it's like what are you doing wrong Woolsey? and you know i don't believe you and it's just the the tone has changed
2: yeah what you know i think henry was really loyal up until the point where he started suspecting you and then it all went downhill very quickly
1: um and Anne sure seemed to have control of his like mind like like it seemed like Before, the king, like, was being led around by Woolsey, and now it's like he's being led around by Anne. And just, he's just so, like, immature. Like, he's like this five-year-old boy playing king, like, and he has no idea what he's doing in life. Anyways.
2: There's a lot of uh, psychiatry from 500 years removed on Henry.
1: Maybe I could write a book one day on Henry, because that's how into it I am. Just kidding. Cromwell, like, seems to be stepping in, like, did Cromwell kind of just assume Woolsey's spot, like, once he, lo- I mean, in, you know, not like this is happening this episode, but it seems like Cromwell's coming in to fill the soon vacant seat of Woolsey. Yes. Does that some accurate? Yeah. Yeah, well you know Cromwell was
2: always very loyal to Woolsey and Cromwell would remain loyal to Woolsey um even though they may have disagreed on on religious they were the on religious issues they were like basically the same kind of men they both had very humble beginnings and they both rose through smarts and through street smarts and you know through being able to get stuff done and Cromwell really admired Woolsey. Woolsey really admired Cromwell. Woolsey was the one who kept promoting Cromwell. And Cromwell was very loyal to Woolsey. And Cromwell would, I don't think, you know, and that's the whole series, Wolf Hall is all about Cromwell basically never forgiving the people who led to, to um, Woolsey's downfall. And at the same time, Cromwell was loyal to Cromwell. And as he started to be able to see the writing on the wall, I think he thought, okay, well, there's a position for me. And also, there's a position for me as the Cardinal's man, like, it's almost like keeping the Cardinal's legacy going. Like, you know, I'm loyal to the Cardinal. And, you know, if if I, stud- if I step into his shoes, at least it's kind of like I'm his protege and, you know, keeping his and it's good for him too. So I, I think there were a number of things, but he was very loyal to Woolsey. It's not like he was trying to I don't think at this point he would have been trying to undercut him or be disloyal or anything like that. But he also could see, he could see what was coming and he knew he had to look out for himself too.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. And he had like, it, it, it's just, it's so, so fascinating how it all works together. Um, like, yeah, cause he's a Protestant, but he's, you know, in favor of Woolsey. It just, it's, it's all interesting. So, Char- the king asked Charles Brandon to run an errand kind of thing for him to go to uh, France with the French king. Is that something someone like Brandon would, would have done? Um, yes. Like sort of do things for the okay. king? Like he would, the king would have people like him do things like this for him?
2: Yeah. And I don't know, you know, that he would that he sent. I don't think he sent Brandon to France directly. um, But, you know, little errands like this. Yeah, if you were if you were Henry's super trusted person, he would send you over a diplomat. um, If it was something really that he really wanted to trust
1: you with. I see. Next, we have Bishop Fisher, uh, speaking with um, Catherine, Yes. And who is Bishop Fisher? Who's this guy?
2: So he was actually Margaret Beaufort's confessor and Lady Margaret Beaufort is Henry VIII's grandmother on his father's side it was his father Henry the seventh Henry Tudor it was his mother and Bishop Fisher was her confessor was her priest he was loyal to her and you know they, they had a, a very good relationship and were very very close um, now by this point he's very old um, and he he was very conservative and very much you know against the marriage to Anne and uh, that's who he was
1: all right. Then next we had the French king speaking with Charles Brandon. And I thought the French king had good advice. Um, just, you know, Brandon was poking for information for everyone and Wolsey. And just the French king kind of said, you know, I-, I think the king needs to handle this himself, basically, and quit relying on other people. And, and yeah, I guess there's no real question there. Just I, I thought that was pretty sound. And it's kind of what ends up happening in a way, I guess. Yeah. So there's that. Um, next Woolsey goes to Campeggio's house and kind of like roughs him up a little. And then like he attacks some other guy. Like, I mean, I guess this is just wild speculation, but do you think like Woolsey was like at this point, like seriously, like attacking people just cause he knew like his life was in danger with this or, or. I
2: don't think it would have been that. Uh, I don't think it would have been that unusual because Woolsey Woolsey did come, you know, kind of like off the streets. And like, he had this kind of rough side to him being the son of a butcher kind of thing. And so I I think he would have known how to rough people up if he needed to. I don't know that it would have been particularly seemly as a cardinal and somebody who wanted to portray peace in the world and somebody and Woolsey worked tirelessly for peace, um, you know, was always trying to bring peace around, peace about, um, and so I, you know, I don't think it would have been something that he would have done lightly, um, but he was also starting to fall apart at this point, point so I don't think it would have been that out of character.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, the next. Just I was thinking, of what what is it? You can take the take the boy out of the streets, but you can't take the streets out of the boy. Yep. So it, it's coming back. Um, so Legantine Court is that what it's called? Yes. Okay. So this Legantine Court thing was crazy. Just is this? I mean, I know we <laughs> you weren't there, but like, like is that is that how it went down? Like, I mean, all like all these people watching and like the king making his case, and then some you know, bishops like my name's not on that. And then, I mean, I guess I'm, I guess I'm not asking is, is, is every minute detail how it went, but just in general, was it just that kind of, I don't know, like spectacle and like kind of pandemonium, it seems like, especially after the queen, you know, gets up, like gets on her knees in front of the king and says what she says and then leaves. Like, it's just so, I mean, you know, you couldn't write, like, if you're just going to write it crazy and dramatic. Like, yeah, that's how you'd write it. So yeah. So I mean, can you tell me like anything about that? It It's
2: pretty, it's pretty close to how it went down. Yeah. And in fact, I think they pretty much replicated the Queen's speech. Um, I think they left a couple of things out her speech was actually longer. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty much how how it went down. And it, she humiliated him. She just, re, it was a really bad scene, uh, and she walked out and said she wasn't going to recognize the authority of it. And you know, they tried to call her back, Catherine the Queen. You have to come back, and she was like, "I don't need to come back. I I don't recognize
1: this court." And um,
2: yeah, it, it and the the people saying, "Well, I didn't sign this." It, it was it was very close. Yes,
1: that's just pretty awesome. I like. I, I think it's like my favorite. My favorite scene so far just, uh, yeah, just basically just saying this is a charade and I just think it's pretty awesome. And, uh, yeah, it's almost a shame to know the outcome (laughs) because I wish the the, I wish the queen would have gotten like a really good divorce settlement or something. But, um, yeah, I guess I guess not. So that that was it. i just my the last thing I wrote is that the Queen's a badass because I think she's a badass. So I'm I'm a big fan of, of, of Catherine of Aragon and and it and yeah, it makes me like, like Spain just a little bit more. There you go. So <laughs> that's it for me.
2: Well, I yeah, cool. Um I think we're really kinda of leading up to the season finale here, which is in two more episodes, which, you know, will you can see the pace at which things are moving. Uh, so it will be exciting to kind of see how it all pans out. Um, but yeah, you know, I think this—I think this episode showed the weirdness at court, um, and also just you know like we talked about i think this kind of thing was very normal if you were wealthy you could get a divorce very easily normal people couldn't but if you were a king if you were a nobleman if you had money to pay for it it wasn't that big of a deal to get a divorce and so henry probably thought like no big deal and um was feeling very frustrated at this point and you know, is so frustrated that he put his soul in eternal peril um, to to break away finally. So it's uh, interesting to see all of these forces coming together, like you said. So we will be back. Um, hopefully, we'll try to do this again next week. Uh, again, apologies about the sound. We're we're just kind of working with it here. Um, but I'm going to try to do some editing <laughs> and see what I can do here. If you like the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes. It is the number one thing you can do to help new shows out and you can learn more about us at watching the com. and thanks for listening
1: yeah thank you all we'll we'll see you next time or talk to you all
2: right bye
1: bye